You're listening to the Jesus for Everyone podcast. To support this podcast, go to RenewedHeartMinistries.com and click donate. And as followers of Jesus, especially ones who choose to embrace Jesus' rejection of violence, we must remember that Jesus did not stand up to injustice. He did not suffer for it simply on our behalf. He calls us to do exact same thing. Welcome to the Jesus for Everyone podcast. My name is Herb Montgomery, and this is a podcast where we talk about the intersection of faith and social justice and what a first century Jewish prophet of the poor from Galilee might have to offer us today in our work of love, compassion, and justice. This is episode 301, and our title is A Primer on Self-Affirming Nonviolence, Part 8. Before we begin this week, Renewed Heart Ministries is a nonprofit organization working for a world of love and justice, and we need your support to continue bringing the kind of resources and analysis that RHM provides. Intersections between faith, love, compassion, and justice are needed right now more than ever. Help Christians be better humans. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation today to Renewed Heart Ministries, and to do so, just go to our website at RenewedHeartMinistries.com and click Donate on the top right, or if you prefer to make a donation by mail, Our address is Renewed Heart Ministries, P.O. Box 1211, Lewisburg, West Virginia, 24901. And to those of you out there who are already supporting this ministry, I want to say thank you. We could not continue being a voice for change both within Christianity and outside in our larger community without your support. In all four canonical Gospels, we read the story of Jesus uh, disrupting or or Jesus' protest where he he shut down the economic activity of the temple courtyards. And for some, this conflicts with interpreting Jesus as teaching uh, nonviolence. They say, how can you say that Jesus taught nonviolence or lived nonviolence when you see his his overturning the tables and and, and the temple? Well, let's look at all four versions of the story first, and then we're going to look at that that objection. In Mark 11.11, We'll start with Mark first. It says, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at evening, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So in Mark eleven fifteen through 16, on the next day, he comes back. It says, and on returning or reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. In Matthew 21, 12, it says, Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches and those selling doves. Luke's version reads, when Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. And in John 2, 14 through 15, it says, in the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. In Mark's version of, of this event, uh, the Gospels quickly take us to the, the next chapter for Jesus' explanation of his disruption and his protest in the temple. In Mark 12, verse 40, it says, They devour widows' houses. For a show they make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. In Mark 12, 42, just two verses later, 
he t- it tells the story. It says, but a poor woman came and put two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. So Jesus considers in Mark's gospel specifically the temple tax and the temple state's failure to redistribute those funds that were raised among the poor. It interprets that as economic exploitation and it takes everything from, from, it's a system that takes everything from those who have nothing, especially this widow who had nothing to give in the first place and, and, and doesn't do anything to take care of them. Jesus's reason for protesting in Mark, it's economic and political. And if one defines politics as the discussion of how power and, and resources are divided among the polis or the people, we can see how this is a, a, a political protest much more than it is a, a religious one. Now, it was also religious in as much as as the Jewish prophets, their similar critiques were religious too. I mean, it it was in the center of the temple. Look at, consider for a moment Isaiah 1. This is 11 through 17. It says, the multitude of your sacrifices. So there's your religious context or your context of worship. It says, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the bulls, in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you? This trampling of my courts, stop bringing me meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts, your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. When you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Why does Isaiah continue to say all of this is is true? Watch this next phrase. It says, your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourself clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. And how is that defined? Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. It's telling that in Mark's gospel, the widow and the, the, the story of the widow with the widow's mites and her being taken advantage of there um, by the, the temple state, that is the impetus. That is the context for, for, for Jesus's economic and political protest and the temple courtyards. And we have to be clear, it's harmful uh, to interpret Jesus's actions as Christianity versus Judaism. All of the earlier followers of Jesus, the early followers, they were all Jewish. Jesus himself was a Jew. Jesus was never a Christian. And in protesting exploitation, Jesus is not opposed to the Torah here, nor to Judaism in in general. Jesus' voice was rather one of many Jewish voices within Judaism in the first century, defining what it meant to be faithful to their God, the God of the Torah. So I don't believe that Jesus's actions in the temple were anti-Semitic, uh, as some Christians would later interpret them. Uh, but, but they were much more about how Jesus saw his own Jewish society and his own Jewish temple state, how he saw them relating to the poor, to the oppressed. And as Borg and Crossan remind us in their book the last week, this is not an issue 
and and I would say of the Temple State's elite members of that society, uh, of the individual virtue, their individual virtue or wickedness, but the role they played in the domination system. They shaped it, enforced it, and benefited from it. And this explains the lethal backlash from Rome and the societal elite of Jerusalem to Jesus's temple protest. And we'll discuss that more in a moment. But first, let's get back to that uh, objection. In John's gospel, we read, and this is again, John 2, 14 through 15, in the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheeps and doves, and others sitting at tables, exchanging money. So he, he made a whip out of cords, and he drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. Cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Now, to some, Jesus with a whip in hand contradicts their understanding of, of nonviolence. And there are a few things we have to keep in mind. Number one, Remember, as we've said in every part of this series, Jesus's nonviolence was rooted in resistance. It was not passivity. It wasn't about being passive. It was a way to resist injustice. Uh, and number two, Jesus, he could have made his whip of cords solely to drive out the livestock. And matter of fact, that's the implication in, in John 2. It was the whip that was used to drive out the animals. It was the overturning of the tables that was made. To, to drive out the, the, the money chamber, cha changers. But it, it seems to me, again, um, uh, uh, that, 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 that uh, the whip of cords, it was solely to drive out uh, livestock. And even with this, Jesus' actions still fall within the parameters of nonviolent action. And we have to hold all of this in the tension that, 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 that none of the force that Jesus used that day was lethal. No one's life was being threatened in his protest. The people's humanity, he was leaving it open for them to still make different choices and still reclaim uh, the humanity they, they were choosing to lose. And, and then again, add to this that all non-lethal force all of the non-lethal force that was used, it was used in protest of the ruling class's oppression of the poor. This was not non-lethal force being used to oppress or, or, or to marginalize those who were societally vulnerable. Um, this was quite the opposite. And, and social location matters. And then lastly, Jesus was not losing his temper here. Remember in Mark, his protest, it was calculated and, and, and well thought out. As we covered in part six, and we just read in Mark's gospel, Jesus intended the temple state's protest, his overturning of the tables that day, to be the climax of his entry into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And when he arrived, it was already too late in the day and the temple was empty. There was no crowd of people to, to witness his demonstration or his disruption. And, and therefore he retired to, to Bethany for the night and returned the next day to disrupt uh, uh, the economic activity of the courtyards. Remember Mark eleven eleven, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at every Thing, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So if we allow Jesus's nonviolence to inform our own nonviolent protests today, we must 
also consider whether it is ever appropriate for the property of the economic elite, the property of the oppressors, to be damaged during nonviolent protest. Jesus, remember, valued people, especially poor people, above property. And some level of property damage, it was involved when he protested in the temple that day. If we have ever been more concerned about property being damaged in protests than we are about the injustice to people at the heart of these protests, we may need to reassess which side of the the gospel story we would have ha- have been on. And, and and by the time of Jesus's protest, his actions again had economic and political implications. And and then remember the number of his followers was also growing, especially among the poor and the destitute. And and property damage. It could not go without both Rome and the social elite making an example of Jesus in their own demonstration. And those who engage in protests like this, uh, violent or nonviolent, they will suffer what follows. Before the end of the week, Jesus was hanging on a cross. Howard Thurman, I believe, explains why the elite of Jesus' own society may have been complicit with Rome in, in, in opposing uh, the, Jesus' property damage that day. This is a Jesus and the Disinherited, page 24. Uh, Thurman writes, The Sadducees represented the upper class. From their number came the high priest, and most of the economic security derived from contemporary worship in the temple. That was their monopoly. They did not represent the masses of the people. Any disturbance of the established order meant upsetting their position. They loved Israel, but they seemed to love security more. They made their public peace with Rome and went on about the business of living. They were astute enough to see that their own position could be perpetuated if they stood firmly against all revolutionaries and radicals. Such persons would only stir the people to resist the inevitable, and in the end, everything would be lost. Their tragedy was in the fact that they idealized the position of the Roman in the world, and they suffered the moral fate of the Romans by becoming like them. They saw only two roads open for them, become like the Romans or be destroyed by the Romans, and they chose the former. So when one begins to understand how Jesus's disruption in the temple, how that threatened the temple state's survival in the Roman Empire, and how Rome viewed all public disruptions, I think it becomes quite easy to understand how how before the week ended, uh, Jesus was being crucified on a Roman cross. And consider the following statements on the specific purpose for which Rome uh, used crucifixion. This is uh, Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan from their book, The Last Week. In first century Christianity, the cross had a twofold meaning. On the one hand, it represented execution by the empire, only the empire crucified, and then for only one crime, denial of imperial authority. The cross had not yet become a generalized symbol for suffering as it is sometimes today, when one's illness or hardship can be spoken of as the cross I've been given to bear. Rather, it meant risking imperial 
material retribution. This is from John Sabrino, Jesus the Liberator. Jesus then suffered persecution. Jesus then suffered persecution, knew why he was suffering it and where it might lead him. This persecution consciously accepted is the measure of this faithfulness to God. It reveals him as a human being who not only announces hope to the poor and curses their oppressors, but persists in this despite persecution because this is God's will. The final violent death does not come as an arbitrary fate, but as a possibility always kept in his mind. This is from Kelly Brown Douglas, Stand Your Ground, Black Bodies and the Justice of God, page 171. Crucifixion was the political punishment for violating the Roman, the rule of Roman law and order. And lastly, this is Ched Myers, Binding the Strong Man, a political reading of Mark's story of Jesus. Crucifixion was and remains a political and military punishment. Among the Romans, it was inflicted above all on the lower classes, i.e. slaves, violent criminals, and the unruly elements in rebellious provinces, not least Judea. These were primarily people who on the whole had no rights. In other words, groups whose development had to be suppressed by all possible means to safeguard law and order in the state. And Chad Myers goes on to remind us that that what got Jesus crucified, it wasn't a, it was not a religious protest. It was a protest of the entire political edifice of the temple state and the Roman Empire too. This is the same book, Ched Myers, as in the modern practice of civil disobedience, which might break the law in order to raise deeper issues of its morality and purpose. So Jesus, just before crossing the line, issued a challenge to his audience, pitting his mission of compassion and justice to the poor against the imperatives of the dominant order, Jesus calls the entire ideological edifice of the law to account. And as followers of Jesus, especially ones who choose to embrace Jesus's rejection of violence, we must remember that Jesus did not stand up to injustice. He did not suffer for it simply on our behalf. He calls us to do the exact same thing. As as Rustin said, we need in every community a group of, of angelic uh, troublemakers. And for the entire speech, um, you can see Bayard Rustin, Organizing Manual Number 2, Final Plans for the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, August 28th, uh, 1963. And, and, and again, this is not about redemptive suffering or, or a call to suffering. We talked about this in Part 4. Suffering doesn't bring life. Refuse Using to let go of life brings life, and Jesus calls us not to die, but to resist injustice even if threatened with death for doing so. And the difference, it can be subtle, but it results in a world of difference in how we respond to suffering and injustice. As the late uh, liberation theologian James Cone stated, this is from God of the Oppressed, the only meaningful Christian response is to resist unjust suffering and to accept the painful consequence of that resistance. And liberation theologian John Sabrino, in his book, Jesus Liberator, he adds, suffering in itself has no meaning. The only suffering that has any meaning is the suffering we accept in the f- 
fight against suffering. And Jesus' actions in the temple, I don't believe they contradict nonviolence, specifically nonviolent self-affirming resistance. Rather, his actions embody his teachings on nonviolent self-affirming resistance to injustice. Next week, we'll consider one more clarification regarding nonviolence before we conclude. Um, so this is gonna this is part eight this week. That means we'll probably land somewhere around 10 parts in this series. I am so glad uh, you've journeyed with us so far. Heart group application this week. Discuss with your group what injustices today you feel particularly passionate about and what kinds of resistance or protest would you find effective or useful in standing up to those injustices. Number two, does Jesus' example of standing up to injustice in his own setting, does that encourage you uh, as a Jesus follower to do the same in your setting? And if so, discuss how that works. And then number three, how can your group reach out to and help those who are the objects of injustice today while also working alongside them for systemic uh, change. Thanks for checking in with us this week. Wherever you are, keep choosing love, compassion, action, reparative and distributive justice. Another world is possible if we choose it. And don't forget, we need your support here at uh, Renewed Heart Ministries to continue making a difference. I love each one of you dearly. I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.